Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation features Brendan Colley. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. Two SCR broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. These are unceded lands, and treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. Brennan Colley is a Hobart-based writer. He won the University of Tasmania Prize for an unpublished work in 2019, and he joins me today with his debut novel, The Signal Line. Gio has returned to Tasmania following the death of his father to sell the family home. This triggers a reunion with his brother Wes, who has followed in their father's footsteps, stayed in Tassie, became a cop. Wes is not having any of Gio's talk about selling. The house contains too many memories. Gio needs money to fund his auditions and fulfil his dream of joining a symphony orchestra. That dream is Gio's true north, a journey that has taken him far from Tasmania. Gio's arrival sets the stage for an untimely family conflict, one of supernatural proportions. Join me as we discover Brendan Colley's The Signal Line. That was an absolutely seamless transition. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, sir. Thanks for taking the time with that. And, um, Oh, look, I'm, I'm going to start by complimenting your background. So many, so many writers have their bookshelves up, but I, I kind of love the posters. Yeah, no, that's, I prefer that sort of energy going on in my writing space. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, terrific. And this is, um, I think uh, I, I was actually double checking because we, we weren't linking up straight away. I thought, I'm going to double check time difference. I'm like, I'm pretty sure you're in Hobart. I'm pretty sure it's, and I accidentally went to my weather app and I know that you're, you're calling in from uh, a fairly cool space, just like myself at the moment. Yes, that's, yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's only about um, a dozen days a year where I don't need a heater or a fan. It's one of the two. You know, the natural climate just doesn't work. <laughs> uh, yes, yes, indeed. Yeah, it feels like it's been winter for a couple of months already, but it's it's kind of nice. I like it. And very, very atmospheric for us both. Now, Oh, the signal line, mate. I'm really excited uh, to talk this through. My name is Andrew Popel, and today I get to introduce you to one of, I'm going to confidently say we're only halfway through the year, but it's been one of my favourite reads so far. It's a new book from Brendan Colley. Brendan is a Hobart-based writer. He won the University of Tasmania Prize for an unpublished work in 2019. It's published now. The Signal Line, it's his first novel. Brendan, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much. Good to be here, Andrew. And I did get that correct, right? The unpublished work has now become the signal line. That's right. So this this sat in manuscript format um, for a couple of years um, after after luckily winning the University of Tasmania Prize, and it is now a book in the world. We all look, and those years were 2020, 2021. We all sat in manuscript format, I think, uh, in our homes in at that time. So... It's great to see it released into the world with the rest of us. I want to introduce the book, and I'm really interested in your take on my introduction. Gio has returned to Tasmania following the death of his father to sell the family home. His brother Wes followed in their father's footsteps, becoming a cop, and he's not having any of Gio's talk about selling. Gio needs the money to fund his auditions and fulfill his dream of joining a symphony orchestra. Wes needs a home and the link to the memories of their beloved but emotionally unavailable father. Gio's arrival sets the stage for an ultimate family conflict. And then a ghost train appears. And Brendan, look, I feel like I've kind of diverged a little from the formula introducing the signal line. I mean, the ghost train, it's a pretty compelling hook. But like, yeah, yeah, for me though, like what was truly compelling about the book was the relationship between Wes and Gio. So now I'm going to flip it back. I want to ask you to introduce these two as you know them and tell us a little bit about why they fascinated you. Thank you. And it's interesting though, because um, with this story, the first thing that arrived to me was the the ghost train. 
And I had read an article along the way. I was working on another project at the time, and it was about ghost trains in um, in Eurasia. And it so captivated me that I put aside my project just for a couple of sessions. And I really quickly came up with this, this arc of a ghost train that had arrived in Hobart and was st- starting to make appearances around, you know, on the old tramway lines and decommissioned railway lines across Tasmania. But I didn't know who the story belonged to and it, it's, it's, it wasn't really important to me. I like to collect bits and pieces and then, you know, when I'm looking for a new project, I'll try different things on. So I put it aside and it was only a year later that I thought there is, there was a question that I wanted to explore and that's what led me to Geo and Wes. And um, at that time I had been writing for 19 years, unpublished, and I had just finished a manuscript which had taken me six and a half years to write and it was roundly rejected. And for the first time I was starting to question my dream, like putting all of this time into writing and was it okay to be just writing for myself? And, and I thought if I could find a character who was questioning their own dream and that was Gio, who's an aspiring violist, he's 30 years old and he has the talent to justify having that dream, but he he perhaps doesn't have the talent to realize it. I thought if I could put that together with this ghost train, because there's nothing more certain of its direction than a train on a track. And there's nothing more elusive than something so solid that's able to sort of slip its path. And I thought that there was something there um, that might reflect my character's own questions about his direction that could work as a sort of a metaphor or a motif for his journey. And then once I found that connection, then it sort of led to um, to to the antagonistic um, character in Wes and the greater cast of characters. I can absolutely see the through line here, or perhaps we'll call it the signal line. Um, we're going to discuss that more in a minute. But that that dynamic of Wes and Geo is absolutely just electrifying. I, I mean, I, I would have I would have happily read these two characters bouncing off each other, or maybe more sort of tackling off each other. And it it got me thinking a little bit about how it can feel like we don't talk enough, or even have a chance as men to discuss our intimate relationships. Um, we we see sort of male protagonists are often solo. Do you feel like it has come to the point where we literally need paranormal intervention to get men to sort through their emotions? Um, it's, you know, that's such an interesting question. I, I know that um, in my own life um, I have a small number of very close friendships with um, with men. And I find, um, for me, they tend to be quite um, intimate. We're quite close. We, we talk about everything. But I think that's, that's more something that's recent. I think when I was in my 20s and my 30s, you didn't have those types of conversations. I don't know what's, what's changed. I know... In that time, I know for my characters, um, in its initial version, I didn't have them living in the same space. Um, I had Wes living in his house, Geo living somewhere else. But the, the tension between them didn't seem fraught enough and it became very clear to me early that if I could have a reason for them being forced to live in one space while they sort through their differences, that that would um, offer greater possibilities in terms of how they speak to one another. And then the interesting thing is, is that Geo's way of dealing with it is to latch on to these quirky people that cross his path and bring them into that space to be a sort of a buffer and neutralize Wes, who's quite threatening and intimidating um, um, as a personality. I'm really, I'm really interested in quite a few things you've said there. Um, 
I guess particularly you you mentioned that you have these relationships in your life now, but you feel like it's a more recent thing. And I think a lot of men might feel that way. And I wonder if something about the historical moment we're in, where we, we have watched um, women fighting and fighting back against, uh, I guess, patriarchal um, power, but also the way that plays out in their lives. If it hasn't perhaps also given men an opportunity to examine their own lives and realise that, um, you know, we have been at times complicit in silence. And as soon as you find your voice, you actually find this desire to use it and and become more who you are, which is really something that Geo goes through as well. There are numerous times in the book where Geo finds himself being different versions of himself and, and thinking that's very un-Geo, but he likes what it brings to him. Did, did you always conceive that Geo was going to go through that evolution or did that happen with the story? Um, yes, I think, and this is, I would say, true for, um, for most projects, um, long projects, where it probably takes a good three or four drafts to sort of find out the essence of who your characters are. When I started with Geo, as I do with any um, any novel that I'm working with, I have an idea of of something specific that I'm going after, but really their um, their nature um, really starts to reveal themselves, their true selves, um, you know, to me as the writer, as I go through that drafting period. But I think Gio is definitely at a point in his life where he is asking more questions than he has answers for. And I didn't necessarily want him to get to a place where he had the answers for those questions or knew himself better, but rather that he could accept where he is and that he could be more relaxed in where he is and who he is without knowing really where where he might get to. Again, you are are amazingly introducing ideas that I want to talk about, but I, I ignored your comment before about the incredible ensemble cast of characters, and I want to come back to that. But first, acknowledging that, again, it feels like we should be talking all things Ghost Train. What a hook. But I think that, spe- I think that the spectral locomotive, it, it's, its presence is, for me, it was this unique opportunity for you to introduce us to Sten, the man who has been hunting the train for 40 years. When you're writing a man like Sten in the now, Sten very much exists in Hobart. The book is set in 2018, I think I'm correct in saying how That's much right. how much do you have to actually understand to write Stan over a few weeks in 2018 his 40 year odyssey the way that i came at Stan was really through how he could reflect geo mm. and so Stan um um really when when Stan first arrived on the page for me um, he was just extremely fun to write because, like, can a person like this possibly exist? A 60-year-old man who's been chasing a ghost train for 40 years whose only mission in life is to intercept something that um, that to everyone else would say doesn't even exist. Mm. And yet he's completely calm about this. And so that's just a fun starting point. What really activated Sten for me is when I realized that he could work really as a reflection Mm. to Geo. Here we have someone 30 years old who is chasing something that feels within reach. Like if, if he just does or makes one or two adjustments, this is something he can clearly get. And alongside him is this ghost train hunter who is completely at peace pursuing something 
that for all intents and purposes is unattainable. And I thought that was um, an excellent reflection to Gio's angst at something that he has as a goal that he wants now and can't live with having now. And, um, and then when I understood that, I could then more write towards the essence of, of who STEM is. And again, I think with each draft and with each passing year, you're able to really um, work on the layers of, of who that person is. And the, the more that they speak and the more that you spend time with them, the more you can sort of like find the words that you know are theirs rather than, than yours as the creator. I loved what you said about, you know, the idea that could Sten possibly exist because like without fail, as I read him in the signal line, um, Stellan Skarsgård was in my head. Like I, it was so, so visually real. And I mean, if I was just fan casting this, you could, you could create an amazing series where Stellan Skarsgård plays Sten. And then you've got, take your pick of the younger Skarsgårds to do flashbacks. It's, <laughs> it's just so real. That's a great thought. Um, I've, out of all the characters I've had, and I, and I forget what the suggestions have been, but a, a couple of people who've read the book um, have suggested um, characters for Sten, but no one else. They, they're the one who they have a character in mind for. And it's kind of um, interesting. He's such an odd and interesting um, character to me at least. I could, I, 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 as you were talking, I'm like, no, actually, I think I could fan cast the entire book for you. <laughs> but I mean, that's going to be a, that's going to be a little bit fraught. Um, just throwing it out there, the, the brothers from Supernatural, the two actors, I'm forgetting their names, <laughs> but there's, there's Wes and Geo. Um, as, as Geo, Wes and Stan are thrown together, they're sleeping in the living room of the house that Wes has, um, you know, he's reduced to this sort of, um, this sort of shrine to their father, we start to learn a little bit of the passions that have shaped their lives. And Stellan, sorry, I just called Sten Stellan. <laughs> Perfect. Sten, Sten describes this idea of the passion and his passion as the signal line. It's his signal line. What can you tell me a little bit about this concept and how that consuming passion can shape a life? Mm. It's interesting because um, probably for the first year and a half of um, writing this novel, I didn't have a title, and um, which was a first for me because usually, you know, in, in the moments that I come up with an idea, um, it, it you know, I often have the title and the, and the title really... Um, um, is sort of like a beacon um, that you sort of that that is just is just like reson is is a, is, a, is a resonating force for the novel, and it was really um, worrying me that I that I had the strong feeling for this um, the story that I was writing, but I, I didn't have like I, di I didn't have like a like a, a, a label for it, and at the time. Um, I was interested in listening to um, um, to podcasts and and you know um, of of odd nature and I and I listened to this remote viewer talking about um, their remote viewing technique and their protocols. Remote viewing is is a person whether or not you believe that this is actually something you can have a capability to do, but they are able to sit in one place and then view or see something that is where they are not. And there are certain protocols that you go through to, um, to do this. And um, as they describe it, um, they receive little bits and pieces or little visuals and they sort of chasing these visuals. And as long as you can keep an, a track on these visuals, you are then on the signal line. And if you lose track, you have to start again. And that that phrase, the signal line, I thought um, captured um, really the essence of the story and the, the many different parts. I mean, it has the feeling of 
sort of railway track sort of like hinting off of it. Um, it, 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 it sort of also reflects, I think, that, that idea of sort of chasing something and knowing when you are sort of um, on, your, on a clear path towards it. And even now, my wife and I, when we speak and we talk about, um, we, we talk in general conversation about anything, you know, we'll say, oh, I'm not on the signal line with this. It, 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 seem, it just seems to be this catchphrase that is able to reflect the idea of sort of being in a zone or in a mindset or in, in the place that you need to be with anything. And my characters um, are all at the crossroads of their own respective journeys and all trying to stay on the signal line of their own, you know, paths. So um, that's quite a long-winded way of, of trying to address that question, but I'm very happy with the title now, but it, it took a long time to sort of come my way. And it lends itself as well to the extraordinary cover. So let's let's do that thing that is so amazing for radio and talk about book covers because the signal line has this um, incredible uh, visual feast. It's an embossed cover and it has kind of the railway signal in in the fluorescent yellow against a black background and it just it just pops. It also has a real kind of topographical feel and I want to I want to try and maybe more neatly segues into something you were talking about there the the signal line and you um now I have forgotten the the name of the process but um Sten he does this in his work he's taken by visions and this this idea of of place kind of seems to sear itself on him he is able to sketch out these places and then they become locations in his memory um, and it, it builds into this almost kind of a history of rail through Sten, but also, also for for Geo as he has returned home, I got a sense the signal line the book has become a bit of an, an homage to spaces around Hobart. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about space and place. Like, what role does geography? And yes, I do hear it as I say it. <laughs> what role does geography play in your storytelling? Yeah, it's um, it's it's curious because um, as I think I mentioned before, I've I've now been writing for twenty five years seriously and and routinely, and um, everything that I worked on before this novel. Um, and first, I should add, um, I'm sure people can pick up from my accent, but. Um, uh, I come from South Africa and I left South Africa after university and um, I, li- I was on the road for 11 years. I lived in the UK. I lived in Japan. I met my wife, Australian, in Japan. We settled down in um, in Australia about 14 years ago. But as a result of sort of this nomadic existence of, of moving and, and, and relocating and sort of living on the road, everything that I wrote – I set in in a fictional place, um, just a nondescript town, because I just I didn't feel that that I was connected. I felt like um, I loved wherever I lived, but I wasn't connected to the place that I was living at, and I and I and I just sort of made this unconscious choice to not set my stories in in the place that I was living, and it's only after we. Um, uh, settled down in Hobart, which was 12 years ago, that I really started to feel connected to the place in which I was living and had the confidence then to set a story here. And um, and I think that's one of the things I'm most like happy with the book is that it's sort of a tribute to the town that has given me, you know, my new home. I'm I'm so interested though because in in thinking on my reading of of Geo Geo's returned to Hobart, there is a big theme through the book about whether it is home or it, he talks right at the beginning about it uh, being a place that he had left forever and he's very uneasy about returning. 
but I also I I feel listening to you there that maybe through Sten you're you're coming to peace with that nomadic lifestyle that you had, and I was really t- I was really taken by the way Sten evokes place and space through the appearances of he calls it his train. Um, and he, he very much seems like someone, as you described yourself, who wasn't connected to places that he was only in for a, a very short period of time. It was very transitory. But it seems like his his moment in that place has seared something on his story, at least. Yes, it's, I mean, I think these, I think this would be true for most writers that um, these different parts of you sort of feed their way you know, a novel is a novel. It's it's not really a memoir. But I think if you're if you, if you're writing from a true place, um, you know, you're able to sort of reflect different aspects of yourself. In I think in a very um, unconscious way, through these characters, they become vehicles for your own journey, your own scars. Um, you know, and um, I know, like, I come from, you know, I'm, I come from a very loving family and it's difficult because um, I've got a, my father's passed away, my, my, I've, I've got one brother and here I've written about two brothers and, um, you know, I give the story to my, to, to my mother to read and I can't trust her to not read this as a literal representation of our family, which it absolutely is not. But the one thing that is, is that, you know, my parents divorced when I was five years old. Um, we've always been estranged by geography and a lot of the stories that I have are people either leaving home or returning home or questioning what home is um, and and um, and a lot of my um, particularly my protagonists um, seem to be um, in transition um, um, you know in terms of their physical place they seem to be passing through a place or fighting the place they're in and that's probably more an echo of my own journey it's 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 not something that I wanted to explore it's it's something that I sort of turn around and go, oh, it's that theme again. You know, it, 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 you can't get away from, I suppose, who you are. Mm. Everyone listening right now wants me to ask if your brother's read this. <laughs> I, um, he has a copy. I sent him and uh, my mother a copy. He hasn't read it yet. I, um, I, um, uh, he's in London. Mm. I, um, I spoke to my mother last week, actually, and um, and then she didn't know if he was going to read it. He's going to read it because he supports me. He has no, he, you know, it's, it's just he's he's not a reader. And then she started telling him about the um, about the story, and he, and he was like, no, 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 don't tell me anything. I want to read it. So he, he'll get her out to to reading it. You you've put him in a you've put him in a double bind here because if he reads it and he thinks you've written him as Wes. He actually can't react too much because then he's kind of fulfilling the Wes role. <laughs> well, he's the younger brother and Wes is the older brother. So uh-huh. potentially he's the hero. Oh, <laughs> lovely. Well, there you go. Again, you've 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 sort of you've written you've written him into a corner. He just has to be the supportive <laughs> brother. So about now with radio, we could conceivably take a music break, but I want to take a break to talk music because in the signal line we have from Wes and Geo's family legacy, um, which I might get you to explain a bit, to the irrepressible Paco's flamenco guitar licks, the signal line is full of music. What did you want the reader to understand about the role music plays in our lives? At first it was just um, a choice where I needed my... I needed a talent for my character because they were questioning it. And um, and it took me a long time to really settle upon Gio as an aspiring um, musician. And I didn't understand um, what um, what music could offer the story when I, when I came up with the idea of being a violist. Um, when I decided 
or felt that that was the organic fit is that um, Gio was going to be a musician. It was immediately apparent to me for, for no reason that it was a classical musician. And, um, and then it was a question of um, being pragmatic and, you know, it, it, it couldn't have been a bassoon. Um, so it felt, I, I settled upon a violin. But then the more I spent time with Gio and his um, and his family history, as you say, so his father, in fact, was an extremely talented um, uh, violinist, um, but gave it away young, and so was Wes, who gave it away young. And um, the mother was a, um, a viola teacher, and Gio took up the viola. The choice of viola compared to violin was because... Um, the viola is sometimes considered the poor cousin, um, um, you know, of of those two, uh, of the violin. And I thought that it made sense that someone who's questioning their talent would be playing the viola rather than the violin. But it was the visual that first attracted uh, attracted me. The idea of, of, of Gio keeping Stem company as he stakes out his train on abandoned platforms, train platforms around greater Hobart, Southern Tasmania with a viola to his chin and sort of weaving a tune. It was as simple as that, that sort of excited me. And then, you know, um, um, Paco who comes into the story about a third of the way through um, that character was based on, um, and, and his partner, Camille, they two hippie batch, uh, backpackers who end up spending time, um, you know, with, with, with Gio and, and in the house. Um, they were actually based on, on real people. I, um, I picked up the, the, this young couple, uh, gave them a, a ride just outside of Hobart. I was living in um, near Signet at the time, and during the summer, backpackers come out to to um, Tasmania for the fruit picking season. I gave them a ride, ended up becoming really good friends with these, um, these two young travellers who, who were leading a nomadic existence that reminded me of the one that I was leading. And, um, and he had a guitar and took it wherever he went. And so it, I just, um, I actually asked those two friends of mine to name those two characters that, ins- that, that, that inspired me in the story. And they actually came up with the names Paco and Camille and named their own characters. So, so again, it wasn't like I was going after music. It, you know, it's because, you know, that person was carrying a guitar, so Paco was carrying a guitar. And, and, then, and then I went after it. Because now that it was there, it, it seemed to just add this acoustic soundtrack to the story I was telling, and and then I just doubled down and went after it as hard as I could, and it just it just added another sort of um, uh, effect to the story that really helped in its tone, and it's just a crazy mix of ideas that I didn't know. If, if it would work. And, um, and I, th- I think maybe I pulled it off, but um, yeah, that, that's one element that, that fits in there and, 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 and seems to have its place. It's yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, if, if it's not, or if it doesn't already exist, th- throw together a playlist for this, because this is, it, it would be extraordinary. Like you can hear, I could hear music as I read the book and it really complements the story. I'd like to pick up a thread there that you mentioned um, Wes's talent and, and also by, by virtue of their father's talent because it's, it's really a, a, a very singular moment. It's almost a throwaway line where we learn about uh, their father's talent, whereas very much the image we have of him is someone who has problems with pain, problems with alcohol, problems with where their life has turned out. Um, but Wes and that his father kind of epitomize, I'm going to call it the, um, you know, the peaked in high school effect, but because of this extraordinary talent and because Geo perceives that he doesn't have the same natural talent, 
their talent has has kind of become deified, whereas in other aspects of our life, you know, the, the peaked in high school is almost a little bit of a sad trope. How do you how do you feel about that that um, I guess juxtaposition the idea that maybe you made it once and you can always point to that achievement versus the idea that the chase is what matters and that you are you are always moving and if you stop moving that's the end. Mm. Um, I mean, it's probably worth sharing because it 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 it, it helps to fully explain. Um, the, the, you know, my motivation for Mm. writing the story and, you know, my fixation on this idea of talent and dream and questioning things. Um, as I said, I started writing, um, when I was in my early twenties, but the reason why I started writing was because, um, to replace another dream. So growing up, I wanted to be a professional soccer player. And um, like Gio, I I had the talent to sort of justify that dream. I played representative, got a scholarship, you know, to university. But I wasn't good enough to make it. And I knew that as soon as I finished university, I was going to stop playing soccer cold there was no way that i could go and play that sport just socially for the enjoyment it 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 was so had been so important as being part of my life as something that i was chasing Mm -hmm. and but i now knew that there was going to be this incredible vacuum left in my life this time and what was i going to do with that time and I, i i don't know where this came from but i just knew that i loved having a dream and having something to wake up for, to make sacrifices for, to suffer for, um, to aspire towards. And the only other thing in my life that I was passionate about was writing. At the time, um, I was writing lyrics with a pianist. We sort of had these crazy ambitions of being the next Bernie Taupin and Elton John, which maybe explains my interest in music. And so I thought, okay, well, let me see if I can write something on my own. So... You know, that first summer after stopping soccer, I wrote a book of short stories, then I wrote a play, I wrote another play, and then I wrote a, started writing a screenplay, and that was it. I was like, this is it. This is what I'm now going to do um, 15, 20 hours a week on top of my job. And the best thing about it is if I'm not good enough, no one can take it away from me. I can write until the day I die. Unlike, say, soccer, which has a shelf life, where if you haven't made it by a certain age, you're not going to make it. And so um, it was interesting to – because I've seen people who didn't make it who were more talented than me. Um, And then you see people who make it because they just persist long enough. And so it was interesting, interesting to me to have Gio here who has the desire, the will, the, um, the ambition, the single mindedness, the prepared to sacrifice. If sitting opposite him is a brother who has, who had all the talent if he had only gone after it. Um, so it was, it, was, it was definitely something that had to feature in some way in the story. And then that also is why, sorry, that's also why um, Paco and Camille were useful because I really felt like I needed a presence there of two people who cared not more than the moment they were in or the next thing. So so they provided this sort of counter to these characters who had given up or who were chasing something. Mm -hmm. Here were two people who were just happy to be where they were. So, yeah. At the risk of sounding glib, how are your knees? Because as someone, I never had talent, but as someone who didn't stop playing soccer, I feel like if I had given it up in my early 20s, there'd be a few mornings I'd wake up feeling a little less sore. You know, it's funny you say that. I have um, no cartilage in my left knee. I can't even go for a jog. And now, being the age that I'm at, I would love nothing more to go and play soccer once a week um, or, or go for a run. So, yeah, that that there was a price to pay there. Mm. 
<laughs> yeah, look, I mean, I was having this, weirdly, I was having this conversation earlier in the week. I, I, I honestly feel, I don't know what, I don't know what our listenership is like. I don't know if, if we're hitting the, the 30s and 40s male demographic, but men in their 30s and 40s who are still playing soccer are insane. I do not want them sliding at me, trying to tackle me for the ball. Um, I wouldn't make it to 50. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing more dangerous than 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 a badly timed tackle. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I don't think it was badly timed. Um, I want to again. I want to pull on these brilliant, brilliant threads you keep laying out for me in in talking about sort of the the professional geniuses, and we can just sort of keep borrowing from soccer here. It always surprises me when I hear you know like hardcore fans talking about favorite players and you know I'll pick on Cristiano Ronaldo you hear talk about you know best player in the world Ronaldo winning games winning games they wouldn't win without him like there aren't 10 other people on the field and to get into that idea of of what it means to be together as a group I want to pick on a seemingly innocuous moment on Elizabeth Street Mall in the signal line not not in line. now Gio is busking and he sees the mayor of Oviedo. Uh, he is one of the original passengers spirited to Tasmania on the ghost train that we meet at the very beginning of the book. Um, now, as the mayor and Gio, they, they speak about Berlio. That's what Gio has just been playing. Giacomo, he comments that a work of genius is often the suggestion of someone else. And I really wondered here whether you were commenting on the necessity for people to come together in art and... Can you tell me, like, have, have I pulled a moment that you'd completely forgotten about out of the book or, or no. what was happening in this moment? <laughs> no, it was interesting. Um, and firstly, to go back to the old, the, the soccer analogy, one that that is one of my um, favourites was um, Bob Paisley, the old Liverpool manager. I'm not a Liverpool fan, but during the, um, the 70s, when he talked about the makeup of a team, he was like, um, I need one violinist and 10 road sweepers. You don't want too many violinists, but you, you can't only have road sweepers. So you need that little bit of magic mm. there amongst, you know, that. So it's sort of interesting how music featured in that sort of analogy too. But with Giacomo, um, I remember that, I know that line obviously, and I remember coming up with it when I wrote that scene um, I wanted to be a fairly fleeting scene. It also was useful because it helped to sort of complete that arc. I didn't want to completely abandon and forget for, forget the story of the displaced Italians, disoriented Italians. I, I wanted to keep them alive sort of in the background. And um, I wanted there to be one connection between Gio and, and Giacomo. And obviously the, the natural environment was Gio, you know, throughout the novel, he's always looking to sort of raise money because um, he, he needs to get materials to paint the house. So he's always down Elizabeth Street more trying to busk. And I thought that would be a, a great place for Giacomo to pass. And, um, yeah, I'd, the, the line came out of um, nowhere, the um, – and then the minute I had the line, I didn't know what it meant, but and I didn't know what it was suggesting, but I, I, I really loved that he said that. Um, I think it, sometimes when I write scenes, right, um, particularly in the early, early drafts, before you're almost trying, well, I am certainly, um, I'm trying to sort of write ahead of my own thoughts. So um, I, I, I see what I'm writing. Um, so I touch type. If I have a scene, I'm like, okay, this is what I want to write. This is what's going to happen. I sort of lower my fingers to the, um, to the keyboard. And much like Sten does, where he's sort of chasing visuals, I sort of, like, I sort of wait for things to happen. And I sort of see them and I stare into like a, a distance and then I just harp what I see and sort of just follow it. And then I get up to a point where I don't see or feel anything anymore. And then I just sort of use my creative imagination to sort of complete the scene. But I remember that scene and that conversation being something where um, 
it happened without control and that line sort of dropped out. And, um, yeah, greatness often the suggestion of, of, of others. Um, I don't know what it means, but it seemed to sort of belong in, in, in the mind and the observation of, um, of, of Giacomo and it, it's um, something that Gio needed to hear. I love. I just love the suggestion that the things that we we perceive to be exceptional and that we we put up on a pedestal as exceptional always exist in this tension with the things that are, that are not exceptional that are every day. You know, we the musician is not exceptional unless someone is there to hear them be exceptional. Um, you know, the Ronaldos of the world are not the Ronaldos of the world unless they have someone to pass them the ball and also an opposition to consistently be routed. Like we, we yeah. must exist in this tension and we, we, if we don't appreciate it, I think it can become a little bit toxic. I, I like, I like the, the socialness of that line. Yeah. And thank you. And, um, and I mean, that's the question I was asking myself, right? Like what validates um, a story? Um, so I'd written for 19 years. This is my uh, third novel. Um, um, I wrote screenplays before that, book of short stories. I wrote a memoir of my two years living in London. I wrote a libretto. Um, so many things before that that were written and not sort of um, read or viewed. And so stories that maybe didn't realise themselves. And, um, uh, yeah, so it's, it's it, like it's an interesting thought. That's definitely something that I was thinking about. And, um, and for me personally, um, I had to change my reasons for writing about 10 years ago, 15 years ago, where, you know, if, if, if the only thing that's going to validate this is say being published, um, then, then there's probably better ways to spend my time. And for me, um, it really came down to there being a reward in, in the act of creating something that there was, there's, there's great joy in someone reading something you've written and being entertained by it or being moved by it or being provoked to think differently by it. But there is also an equal and perhaps more value in the act of creating something, um, in, in writing a story, in whistling a tune. In You don't have to be great to do that. It, you the the, the 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 greatness of the art doesn't um, doesn't move the creator more because it's better it moves whoever anything that is art can move a person who creates that art if you let it the one thing that I would add is that um, the best advice that I ever received, I only received recently, last year. I, I, like most, um, I listen to podcasts um, by creatives, by writers. Um, I, I love listening to people, artists talking about process. And, um, and I listened to someone um, last year in a podcast and they posed a question that really moved me in a profound way. And I wish someone had challenged me with this question when I was starting out 25 years ago. And this was, this was it. This person was a British playwright. And while they were going through their formal training, studying theatre, um, their, their mentor, their tutor, challenged everyone in the class to answer the following question. Do you want a writing career? Or do you want a writing laugh? And if you think about that, um, the way you approach your art or your discipline will be very different compared to how you feel or want to be. And I realized that in the last 15 years, I wanted a writing laugh. Um, and, and, if you if that's true 
and you accept that, well, then I've always had writing since the day I started. And similarly, Geo already has music. And um, there's a twist in the novel um, that I won't even speak in which direction it comes, but which sort of reinforces that idea that, you know, very often um, we already have the things we're searching for. But I don't know, it's just human nature to always want that little bit more or that something else that you don't have. And um, that's where I wanted to leave Geo is with that understanding that it's good to have this dream, um, but it's also important to know that you already have music in your life. That was extraordinary. Thank you so much for those insights, Brendan. Now, throughout our conversation, as it is woven throughout the signal line, there is this ghost train that we really haven't kind of, we haven't stared directly at it, which I mean... (laughs) I don't recommend staring directly at approaching trains. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna let you go without us talking about the supernatural, though. And one of your characters, I can't recall who right now. I think it might have been Stan, but um, oh no, maybe Labashain. Um, he talks about not believing in the supernatural so much as believing in the people who believe in it. What does belief mean to you? You don't have to talk directly to the, the train or any of the, the mysteries of the book, but I'm interested in this idea about belief. Mm. It's um, my own sort of journey with belief. Um, everyone's journey with belief is, 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 a, is a deeply personal one or non-belief. Um, um, but um, I think it's, 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 it's worth sharing here. So, you know, I was brought up in a very strict um, um, uh, evangelical Pentecostal household. You know, we prayed every night before we went to bed, um, youth group on a Friday night. I went to church three times on a a Sunday. Um, um, You know, speaking about things like, God and angels as if, you know, they just matter of fact around you. And so I've obviously, well, not obviously, but I have gone on a journey um, that's trailed away from that. Um, But possibly because of that, I still sort of believe in things that are, um, that are bigger than us. I believe in in consciousness and in in things. And I'm just interested in anyone who believes in another realm sort of, um, you know, so, and that, that, that sentiment by, um, and if you don't mind, I'm going to pronounce him as a South African word in Australia, we pronounce his name as Labuschagne or certainly the, 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 the test cricketer Labuschagne, but in South Africa, that name would be pronounced Labuschagne. And that line by Labuschagne that I, I don't, you know, I don't believe in these things. I, I believe in people who believe in these things. And that's actually, um, what I feel I'm, I'm interested in people who believe in something. I'm, I'm maybe I'm, 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 I'm less interested in, in speaking about belief itself, but I'm more interested in what people believe in. And, um, and, and, and I'm, I'm equally interested in people who don't believe um, as well. So yeah, that, that's just a little thread there. Mm. of sort of where I've come from. I don't know if it uh, speaks to the question directly, but it's probably worth mentioning. I just, I found it extraordinary and and just some sort of writing thinking that I, I, it came something I was listening to recently, which I can't recall exactly, but talking about worlds and world building and the way they influence stories. And it really doesn't, it doesn't matter what element you bring into a story, as long as it's it's internally consistent with that world. So, you know, if you're, I, I think I might've been listening to something about mysteries and it was like, look, if, if it turns out the murderer was a dragon, that's absolutely fine. As long as in your story, you've established that dragons are a thing. And in your story, you have a ghost train. And I was, I thought it was extraordinary when Sten talks about 
it being his train and actually in the mythology of ghost trains, um, people are mistaken. All, all the trains are his train. And you really kind of got me thinking about like, how do, how do ghost trains even exist? This idea, you know, like ghosts and the supernatural predate trains by you know, millennia. And then I suddenly thought, like, this train feels like a story and stories have existed as long as there have been people to tell them. And and suddenly in your world, I had this internal consistency that there's something about this this train that's a story and, and my own, you know, how I feel about the supernatural, which I don't have a firm feeling about, suddenly made a lot of sense to me because I believe in stories. And I thought this wonderful idea that whatever people were seeing was this story that kept carrying on into, in, you know, carrying forward felt really wonderful to me. And, and the, you know, I'll end this chapter of Andrew tells you how he read a book, but I just wanted to... I just, I just kind of wanted to comment on that because you really, you throw up this idea of the supernatural, but then much like, um, you know, I, I keep coming back to kind of the um, Tim Burton's original Batman with Michael Keaton. You don't ram it down our, our throat. Like I think Batman appeared about seven minutes in that film and the ghost train is, is not, um, I guess, is not driving through the entire story, except in that it's always on people's minds. And I, I love the way you handle that. Thank, thank you for sharing that. And, um, you know, um, in sort of setting out um, my stall for the story, something that I really had to sort of um, grapple with was how am I going to pitch this? Like how – so firstly, am I able to – suspend a reader's disbelief here. Can, can this thing exist in a way where my characters can speak quite matter-of-factly about this and us take them seriously? Secondly, um, is it an ominous sort of presence? Um, is it of its own mind? Um, what tone did I want to give this? And that, again, was one of those things that really came through the drafting of it. But I really appreciate your comment that for you, it sort of brought um, this feeling of, of story. For me, um, I felt like the train represented sort of that hope, that, mm. that things are possible, that impossible things are possible. But all you need is to believe in them, uh, in something, and take it seriously. Or all you need to actually do is take yourself seriously. And these characters, they're all a little bit crazy, but they take themselves very seriously. And, um, and, and I think, like, that's, I think, what sort of um, reinforces that idea that um, you know, um, if you if you believe that something can be possible, then the belief that it can be possible is more important than the fact that it it has to be. Mm. So um, no, that's it's sort of interesting. I think that train can represent um, many things. Well, all I would add there is that there is a place the impossible is possible and that is in stories and and i think about geo and and what is his passion what is his dream except the story he is telling himself about this thing that will happen in the future and it's just yeah it's it's wonderful i mean i i just have to i i don't know how to do i tell if i want to recommend this book do i tell people about the incredible relationships do i tell them about the ghost train i just I really have gotten so much. So, Brendan, look, I want to I want to thank you so much and, and reintroduce you to people. I am speaking with Brendan Colley. We are discussing his novel, and I'm not going to. It's not your first novel. It's your first published novel. But yeah. Brendan, it's it's terrific to have the signal line and to be able to share it out there with our listeners. No, thank you so much, Andrew. And it's. Um it's wonderful to be able to, um, you know, have an opportunity and, and the honor of like talking about something that, that, um, that you've written. So I've really appreciated this conversation. 
That's it for this great conversation with Brendan Colley. Brendan's new book is The Signal Line. It's out now from Transit Lounge. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel, with special guest appearances by Rocket. If you're a long-time listener, you know my cat. And she decided to headbutt the microphone throughout this recording. So, hey, Rocket, good to have you here. Stay in touch. You can contact me or Rocket. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just look for Final Draft 2SER. Subscribe in your podcast app to get a new great conversation every week. I am Andrew Popel. I will be back next week, probably with Rocket, and there will be more great conversations from Final Draft. Happy reading. I hope you have a cat in your lap.